0: Welcome to Near East PolicyCast, episode 27 for August 17, 2017. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. If the boy is father to the man, what to make of a successful, powerful leader who's driven by insecurity and resentment? In his just-published book, The New Sultan, Soner Shabtai charts the rise of Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan from the working-class neighborhood of his birth on the wrong side of the tracks, to the pinnacle of power in his country and the grievances that still guide him.
1: Erdogan, even when he's at the height of his political career, feels weak as a citizen, he knows that and fears that the moment he lets down, his opponents that he has crushed will resuscitate themselves out of their ashes and will push him back to where he's from, to the other side of the tracks.
0: Join us for an in-depth conversation about Erdogan's rise, and whether it's too late for the most powerful Turkish leader since Kemal Ataturk to turn away from the insecurities that are driving him toward autocracy. After this...
1: This is Lori Plotkin Bogart, K-Family Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Washington Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies to secure them. Find all of our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute.
0: We're speaking today with Soner Shabtai, Bayer Family Fellow and Director of the Turkish Research Program at the Washington Institute. Soner is the author of the recently published book, The New Sultan, Erdogan and the Crisis of Modern Turkey, which offers fresh insights into the youth and rise of Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan and how his increasingly autocratic rule is reshaping Turkey and the world. Suner, welcome to Near East PolicyCast. Thank you so much, Scott. Recep Tayyip Erdogan was born in 1954. How did his childhood and upbringing shape the man who would come to dominate Turkish politics in the 21st century?
1: Understanding Erdogan and why he is so authoritarian and why he continues to crack down on his opponents, including secular Turks, goes through understanding Erdogan's upbringing in what was once a secularist society. Erdogan was born into a poor, pious, conservative family in 1954 in a gritty Istanbul neighborhood. And the Turkey that he was raised in is very different than the Turkey that Erdogan has crafted. The Turkey that Erdogan was born into was a secularist society in which old religion was relegated to the private sphere. Religion was not supposed to be part of public life, government, or education. And uh, people and families like Erdogan's family felt fundamentally marginalized in this society as they were pious and conservative, and they wanted to wear their religion on their sleeve. And I think Erdogan, to this day, bears a grudge against that system that for decades treated people like him and his family as second-class citizens. That secularist order came down gradually after Erdogan took power in 2002, and he methodically went after Turkey's secularist institutions. Today the country can no more be considered secular, but Erdogan still carries a chip on his shoulder, as if to remind the secular Turks how poorly they treated this kid Once up in a time, who lived on the other side of the tracks in Turkey, in the conservative half of the country, that felt profoundly marginalized in the former uh, Turkey of the former year. How
0: common was Erdogan and uh, Erdogan's family's experience in mid-century Turkey? Was was he and his working-class family and their pious uh, family life was was that on the margins of Turkish society, or was that a more common experience for? large sectors of, of Turks in the time.
1: It was a common experience, and what put Erdogan aside is that he, he also went for a political path. Turkey, for a very long time, had a conservative majority. That conservative majority voted for center-right parties, which were secular in nature, which kept Turkey on track, both in terms of secular politics, as well as maintaining the country's strong ties to the West. What's different about Erdogan's experience is that he broke his teeth in Islamist politics, starting in the 1970s, bringing the idea of politics and Islamist mobilization together, and uh, he joined a number of Islamist parties from the 1970s onwards. But ironically for him, his experience of being treated as a second-class citizen, as he saw it, continued, because the three Islamist parties that Erdogan joined were successively shut down by Turkey's constitutional court, a secular court, of course, before Erdogan, in decisions that were upheld by the judiciary but as well as by the secular business community and the media. So Erdogan not only I think has a grudge against the secular system in Turkey from when he was a kid but also from when he was an adult as he broke his teeth in politics. In 1995 for example he was elected as the mayor of Istanbul from Islamist welfare party. That party was shut down by a decision of the Turkish constitutional court. Erdogan was actually sent to jail for a very brief term for reading an allegedly incendiary poem. So all of this, I think, really built up a legacy of a deeply scarred political personality. Uh, I believe that Erdogan, as I write in The New Sultan, even when he's at the height of his political career, feels weak as a citizen, he knows that and fears that the moment he lets down, his opponents that he has crushed will resuscitate themselves out of their ashes and will push him back to where he's from, to the other side of the tracks. So it's almost as if he is in an authoritarian chamber of his making, the way he grew up, in the sense that he feels that the moment he liberalizes and relaxes, his opponents will push him back to uh, where he comes from. And I think that explains, of course, part of his political legacy that he's leaving behind.
0: Well, and before we get to his legacy, we can look back to the formation of the AKP, which he was instrumental in in 2001. You write that the formation of the AKP was something of a response to the repeated shutting down of previous Islamist parties by the Turkish establishment. How did those earlier bannings and imprisonments inform Erdogan's approach at the formation of the AKP?
1: So, Islamist parties in Turkey were established from the 1970s onwards. Uh, There were three of them. All three were shut down by the country's constitutional court. And the last time this happened Erdogan, who was a member of the last generation of Islamist party known as the Welfare Party that was shut down by the court, decided that uh, he should split ways from the Islamist party in general because the party could reestablish itself as many times as it wanted to, but it would be shut down by the country's constitutional court. And ironically, the decisions would be upheld by the European court, the superior Court in Strasbourg, because Turkey recognizes this court as the country's um, appeals court, and this court had ha, used to upheld decisions, of course, uh, that the Islamist parties in Turkey violated Turkey's constitution, therefore they could be shut down. It's not something we have in the U.S., but in Europe, there is a legacy and system that parties that violate constitutional order, such as Nazi parties in Germany and the Basque Nationalist parties in Spain, can be shut down, and this term was applied to ban... Islamist parties in Turkey, and Erdogan saw this reality. He realized that this is not how it would work. Therefore, he decided to moderate the uh, Islamist movement. He split up from the Islamist movement, set up his own brand called AKP, Justice and Development Party. He basically portrayed the AKP not as an Islamist movement, but as a conservative Democrat movement, and that worked because at the time Turkey was going through its perfect storm, not only Erdogan's Islamists were quote-unquote moderating, but also Turkey's centrist, center-right parties that had ran the country for nearly uh, decades, five decades, ever since Turkey held its first multi-party elections since 1950, were collapsing. Center-right parties collapsed during the 2001 economic crisis. This is the worst economic crisis in Turkish history. The economy grew smaller by uh, 10% in one year, and the parties Were responsible for the collapse, of course, and the electorate was ready to throw them out. That was the perfect storm that brought Erdogan to power. Just as the electorate is voting out Turkey's traditional parties that had dominated the country for half a decade, Erdogan is coming from the margins, the political wilderness, and he's saying, "I'm not Islamist. Vote for me." And that worked. That strategy brought him to power ultimately in 2002. As the electorate wanted a clean slate, they wanted a party that was not corrupt. And not, of course, surprisingly, AKP's name uh, in Turkish is AK Party, AK Party. The word AK in Turkish, AK, stands for something that is white and pure in the abstract sense. That was his branding. It was masterful. It worked. He was telling the Turks, I'm not corrupt. I'm not Islamist. I'm clean. Vote for me. And it worked.
0: So would it it be true to describe that, uh, or, or accurate to describe that after three decades of coming at politics, from an the the, the Islamist perspective uh, and and looking to engage on the center right, Erdogan essentially attempted to form a center right party that then had a an Islamist reformist bent, sort of the, flipping the uh, the rhetorical priority of those two elements of the uh, the party platform.
1: That's correct, but they are they in the new sultan that was tactical, not strategic. It mm-hmm. was not as if the Islamists had moderated; it was that the Islamists realized that they had to moderate to stay open as a movement and to come to power under the banner of a moderate movement. But Erdogan, because he faced so much hostility from the system, uh, he was uh, jailed, although he was Istanbul's mayor, his party uh, that he was part of was shut down uh, three times. I think his strategy was to come to power, though under a moderate banner, but to go after the system once he was in power, and to do this very slowly, gradually, and methodically. Erdogan knew that he faced an alliance of forces that had previously pushed Islamist parties out of power, and that alliance at its heart had the Turkish military. At its wings, it had the secular business community, the courts, and the media. And he went after these four institutions very methodically. He used the what is known as the Ergenekon case, alleging a coup plot to lock up a quarter of Turkey's active duty admirals, and generals. The prosecutors were never able to prove a convincing and persuasive account of the said plot, but it was enough. Erdogan said the military has done coups before. There's evidence, and the prosecutor said there's a coup plot. It's just that it's so well hidden, we can't find it. Uh, many generals were locked up for five years without any charges and a due process, and it worked. The military resigned en masse in 2011, bowing to Erdogan's power, recognizing that he had won, After that, he went after the courts, passing amendments to the Constitution, which allowed him to appoint a majority of the judges without a confirmation process. And then he targeted uh, large businesses and media with tax audits. That, too, worked, creating a compliant... Uh, media environment as well as a business environment where most businesses are afraid to support his opponents and will Mm -hmm. support him uh, happily so that is Erdogan's revolution it happened in the last decade it was very gradual and I believe that when Erdogan came to power uh, perhaps he wanted to take down those institutions were there inflection points on the way there were clearly inflection points this is not to say that this was Erdogan's goal from the beginning because we can't know that we're not in Erdogan's mind But the inflection points, uh, I would say, basically were the fact that European Union accession, which was a probability for Turkey in the last decade, required that Turkey take the military out of politics. That was perfect for Erdogan because he had a grudge against the military, Mm -hmm. but it was not a personal grudge. It was because Turkey wanted to get into the EU that he could go after the military. So his going uh, against the military, taking it out of politics, locking up generals was all framed as part of Turkey's accession into the EU and that is an inflection point. Once Erdogan locked up the generals and the secularist military bowed his pressure, the EU dropped the accession process Hmm. and that allowed Erdogan to have a liberal pivot, turn away from European values. Had the EU kept the accession process a realistic uh, one, prospect, it would have been much more difficult for Erdogan to turn a liberal after eliminating the military's power in Turkish politics, as well as putting the courts and other institutions under its power. But whichever way it worked out, of course, Turkey ended up being a much less liberal, much less free, and much more authoritarian place uh, after 15 years of rule by President Erdogan.
0: Was there ever a chance that the AKP could have evolved into essentially a normal political party on the center-right rather than becoming, uh, in effect, the instrument of a single powerful and charismatic leader?
1: Perhaps if another inflection point had not worked in, and this is, as I call it, as I call it in the new sultan, the curse of the Turkish electoral threshold. Turkey has a rather high 10% electoral threshold, which means that parties that get less than 10% of the vote nationally cannot get into the parliament, and the seats that they'll be getting go typically to the first party. That threshold barred some middle-sized parties that polled nearly 10% from the parliament in consecutive elections starting with 2002, and each time the seats that they'll be getting into parliament went to the AKP. So ironically, Erdogan's AKP never received the pop, majority of the popular vote in Turkey, meaning it never received more than 50%, but it always received two-thirds, up to two-thirds of the seats in the legislature. So it was a party from the beginning, because of the curse of the uh, threshold, it's really a blessing at first because it allows the, uh, Erdogan to have many more seats in the parliament than would be his share uh, because of the threshold he's actually empowered. He has many more seats in the parliament than his share in the population would dictate. That looks like a blessing, but I argue in the new sultan that it's a curse because it basically suggested from the very beginning that AKP was never accountable, that it could pass any legislation if wanted to without building consensus, although it never represented the majority population. That did not matter. It had a majority of the seats in the legislature, so it started to break China, as if an element in China shop, from the very beginning, and I think that was perhaps one reason why, if there was any real grounds for the party to moderate, the curse of the threshold destroyed that possibility from the very beginning. In every election since 2002, the party received many more seats in the parliament than will be dictated by its share in the popular vote as a result of the threshold.
0: That, that's an important structural factor, but we've, we've mainly been talking about personality and, and the, the resentments and grudges of one man. What would you say to a listener who thinks we're straying into biography as destiny determinism? Is the personality of one man, even the country's strong man, really that decisive in shaping the life of the Turkish nation?
1: Uh, clearly it is, because Turkey has a legacy of strong political personalities shaping the country's future. This is not the first time the country is having a very powerful political figure who is shaping the country in his own image. I I explain in the new sultan that in this regard, Erdogan is sort of a new, quote-unquote, Ataturk. Who was Ataturk? The founder of Turkey in the 1920s, who decided that he would make Turkey a secular, modern European republic, because that was Ataturk's, those were Ataturk's values, and that work. Ataturk used a government policy, public policy, education, and state funds to shape a country in his own image, and that worked until Erdogan's rise. I argue that Erdogan is a new, quote-unquote, Ataturk. It's in quotes because, of course, he doesn't share Ataturk's values. He's uh, not secular, not pro-Western, and definitely doesn't want to see Turkey part of Europe. To the contrary, he's politically Islamist conservative, and wants to see Turkey part of the Middle East. But he shares Erdogan's methods of top-down social engineering using public policy, education policy, government funds, and this is what has been going on in Turkey for the last 15 years, increasingly so in the the latest years, where Erdogan is making a tremendous strides to shape Turkey in his own image in the fashion of Erdogan. But I also argue that this is a crisis in making, Because whereas Atatürk's Turkey was 90% illiterate and most educated Turks supported his agenda, Erdogan's Turkey is 97% literate and most educated Turks do not support him. On top of it, Atatürk's Turkey was 80% rural. Most urban people supported this idea of a secular Western European society. Erdoğan's country is 80% urban. Most educated and urban Turks do not support him. In fact, in the most recent referendum on April 16, where he uh, won a referendum by a very slight majority to become an executive-style president, uh, the overwhelming percentage of the country's wealthy cities voted against him. Hmm. The cities that voted against them collectively represent 73% of Turkish GDP. So Erdogan's uh, challenge is that he wants to be out of Turk, but it's a split society where the more educated urban elements will never fall under him. And numerically speaking, he got support of only 51% personally in the last referendum, with 49% voting against him. And that is an extremely deep crisis that his political trajectory has thrown the country into.
0: Well, given both that crisis and the dilemma that Erdogan faces, and and also given the personal factors that have pushed him uh, into his current position, does he really have a choice here? Is turning back from uh, increasing authoritarianism even an option uh, for Erdogan right
1: now? I would, have, I would love to see that, but unfortunately, I don't think that's an option. And I think that is related to the crisis that Turkey is in. So... Erdogan has a bright side. He has lifted many people out of poverty. He has delivered phenomenal economic growth in the last decade. And that's why he's got a base that bends around him. But he also has a dark side. He demonizes demographics, cracks down on groups, locks up people who are unlikely to support him. And that's a range of groups in Turkey extending from liberals to social democrats to socialists, Alevis who are liberal Muslims and Kurds and secularists. When you add up these groups, they make up nearly half of Turkey. And that is a problem for him. He has locked up so many dissidents, prosecuted so many people, stepped on so many toes that he fears that if he loses elections or power, he himself will be prosecuted and maybe even persecuted. And that's why going forward, he feels that he only has to become more authoritarian to make sure that this opposition, which is half of the country, will not overthrow him. That's a challenge for him, because while half of Turkey, mostly conservative, with some elements being politically Islamist, bands around him, also because he has lifted them out of poverty, and that half of the country loves Erdogan, the other half loathes him, Hmm. detests him, and wants to see his fall. Erdogan wants to prevent the scenario. So, going forward, he will take steps, unfortunately, as I predicted in the new Sultan, to end democracy in Turkey. And he's already doing this. Uh, there was a coup last year, a nefarious attempt against government. A state of emergency was put in place after the coup. He's now extended that state of emergency for, uh, three times, extended it again recently suggesting that it would be extended indefinitely until there is peace and welfare in Turkey. How do you measure peace and welfare? Which means this is open-ended suspension of rights and liberties. The problem, of course, is that this strategy itself is also unsustainable, the strategy of ending democracy.
0: The United States, of course, has uh, material interests in the welfare of, of Turkey, seeing it uh, not uh, fall into civil conflict or or even civil war we also have a, a values interest in Turkish democracy and rule of law what can what should Washington be doing in its relationship with Turkey to uh, uh, help our our friend and ally avoid the pitfalls of of Either civil strife or uh, descent into a truly illiberal or anti-democratic government.
1: Turkey, of course, is a very important ally. It borders Iran, Iraq, Russia uh, across the Black Sea, Syria, and ISIS. Meaning, whatever U.S. policies are regarding these five countries and entities, they're much easier with Turkey. They're much more uh, less costly with Turkey, of course Uh, course, much easier to implement with Turkey on board. So we need to keep Turkey on board and maintain it as an ally. But we also have a problem that Turkey's deep crisis threatens to make it less of a reliable ally. As I explained earlier, just as Erdogan wants to shape Turkey in his own image and half of the country loves that agenda, the other half of the country not only rejects that, but will also not fall under it. And I think going forward, Uh, with uh, allegations, especially uh, um, a common consensus in the Washington um, um, analytical community that the referendum may have been rigged, which will be the first time elections in Turkey were rigged in 1950. If that is the case, it would be very unfortunate. Turkey has had free and fair elections longer than has had Spain. But if indeed elections were rigged and future elections are rigged, for the 50% or the nearly 50% that does not support him, the conclusion would be that Erdogan brutalizes them and they cannot vote him out. And that's a very dangerous trajectory. I would mm-hmm. never want to see it, but it would open the path for radicalization of at least some of the elements of this opposition who will start to believe that there could not be a democratic way of opposing him because that means a shutdown. Erdogan is extended state of emergency. He is rigging elections. And that's a very violent A scenario which we don't want to see, but if it happened, that would cripple Turkey's ability to be a U.S. ally. Uh, Turkey would be consumed by its domestic tensions and civil strife, and that would not be able to provide the U.S. with assistance or standby with the U.S. So I think the United States has core interests to prevent Turkey's slide into authoritarianism. It is about Turkey's ability to be a good ally, and I think. The best way to do it, is, of course, not through megaphone diplomacy. It doesn't work with the Turks. They're a proud, The Turks are a proud nation, having uh, established an empire that ran uh, three continents for 600 years, uh, parts of those large uh, continents at least. And I think the best way to deal with Turkey and Turkish leaders, of course, is, is behind closed doors to get the message across to Erdogan that his political trajectory threatens to split Turkey up in such a way that this is bad for the United States, but it's also bad for Turkey. And I think it's also bad for Erdogan. He will probably go down in history, not probably, he will definitely go down in history as the guy who transformed Turkey economically and did an excellent job in that. Turkey today is much better off economically under Erdogan than it was before him. When he came to power, infant mortality rate in Turkey was comparable to pre-war Syria. That's pre-war Syria. That was in 2002. Now, Infant mortality rate is comparable to Spain. The Turks used to live like the Syrians. Now they live like the Spanish. The country has improved in every indicator of human development index. Infrastructure is better. It took people in Istanbul hours to cross the Bosphorus, to go from one part of the city in Europe to the other part in Asia. Now there's a metro line that takes you across in four minutes. It's like going to the moon. So that's his bright legacy. That's a legacy he should maintain, I hope. But the other legacy that threatens to go with him is the fact that he might also go down in history as the guy who messed up politically, Turkey, or who almost messed the country up. And I think he still has a way to avoid that legacy if he was to stop polarizing, as well as his agenda of shaping Turkey in his own image. I argue that the time for the Atatürk model has passed in Turkey and elsewhere. The idea that a leader could shape an entire nation in his own image using state policy is something that worked in the early 20th century. That was a different world. That will not work in the 21st century. The sooner Erdogan recognizes that reality and the fact that half of Turkey will never fall under him, the better it is for him, for Turkey, and also for U.S. relationship with Turkey.
0: Let's hope it's not too late. We've been speaking today with Soner Shabtai, Bayer Family Fellow and Director of the Turkish Research Program at the Washington Institute. Soner is the author of the recently published book The New Sultan, Erdogan and the Crisis of Modern Turkey, which is available in print and ebook. Soner, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate it. This has been Near East Policy Cast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at Washington washingtoninstitute.org, follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute, and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers.